Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14 is where we're going to start. Verses 1 through 14. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and a behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army." Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, Ezekiel is taken in a, in a vision again to a valley, and covering the surface of this valley were very, very dry human bones. Now, God asks Ezekiel a question. He says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? If you and I were sitting there or standing there in this valley, seeing all these dead bones, and someone were to ask you, can these bones live? Our first reaction would be, <laughs> no. But Ezekiel knows that nothing is impossible with God. And I loved his answer. He said, oh, Lord God, you know. That's a really good answer. If you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were asked, can your God save you from this fire? Their answer was, he's able. Whether he will or not, we don't know. But we know he's able. Only he knows whether or not we're going to make it through this situation. And, and in the same way, I want to just encourage you. This is a really good answer. When we're in situations where, we're, where we lack understanding, when we don't know the answer to the question, that's a hard thing for a lot of us. We live in the day of increased knowledge. And if you don't know something, all you got to do is just Google it and you get the answer right there. You know, it's a, have you ever thought about that? How uh, most people, if they didn't know something, they wouldn't know it unless someone would teach it to them who did know it. Nowadays, you're living in a time when you don't know something. Boop. You know? How many people does this boat hold? Boop. It'll tell you. Oh, who was in this movie? Boop. It just, any information you need, it's going to be right there. And being in a day of increased knowledge, which, by the way, Daniel 12, verse 4 said that knowledge was going to increase in the last days and people are going to be able to go to and fro throughout the earth. Living in this day of increased knowledge, we don't like to say we don't know. But if we're honest, there's many things in our lives we don't know the answer to. A lot of you are going through situations where you would love to know how it's going to play out. But do you really know how it's going to play out? No, we don't. 
We don't know. And the good biblical answer in those times when you don't know how it's all going to flesh out is God knows. Go real quick to Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, we see this same humble attitude in the Apostle John. He had just seen this great multitude that no one could number, standing before the throne in, in white robes. And in verses 13 and 14, Revelation 7 verses 13 and 14, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, again, that wonderful attitude. John, with much insight as he's been given, as he's given this vision of what's to come after the rapture of the church and what's going on as he sees the throne of God and the opening of the seals and the things happening on the earth. He sees this multitude of people that are saved during the tribulation period. And the elder says, who are these people? And his answer is, I don't know. But it's not, I don't know. His answer is, you know. You know. And so I just want to challenge you. In all of us, our lives, we're going through stuff where we don't know how it's all going to play out. Just because you don't know doesn't mean nobody knows. See, a lot of times we always answer that, don't we? Well, nobody knows. Actually, that's not true. There is someone who knows. I love the fact that back before Nicole was born, Becky was pregnant with her and she was bleeding. And we rushed to the doctor. And the doc our baby doctor, Dr. Cease, who was a Christian, wonderful man, he he said, uh, this looks pretty serious. Let's send you next door to the hospital to have a test done. So they sent us next door to the, the hospital. Becky did the test. They sent us straight from the hospital back to the doctor's office. And I turned to the doctor and I, said, I literally said these words, will our baby live? And he looked straight at us and he said, I don't know. But I know who does know. And he grabbed our hands and he prayed. She made it. She's sitting right there. And we're glad she did. But I love the fact that the doctor even was humble enough to say, I don't know, but there is one who does know. So don't be afraid to say you don't know, but don't stop there. Understand and know that there is someone who does know. All right. Now, when we believe with, in a God with whom nothing is impossible, we're going to see great things. Let me say that to you again. When we believe in a God with whom nothing is impossible, you will see great things. I'm just going to tell you straight up, I think many, many of us in the church today have not experienced some of the neat things of God simply because we really don't wait on God or believe in the impossible. I think we miss out on a lot. I, as a pastor over the years, got tired of preaching about the power of God and my only illustrations about the power of God were the Red Sea and the walls of Jericho. And it hit me one day, if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, how come we don't see this stuff today? How come we're not seeing the power of God displayed? And so I began to sincerely search the scriptures and pray. And God began to show me that one of the main reasons why we in the church today don't see these things, God's still able to do these types of miracles, is because... We really don't want to wait on him. All you got to do is just look up in the sky every night. Definitely. 
the fact that the earth even stays in its orbit and that many things. But let me, let me put it to you this way. I've asked Christians all around the country over years, wouldn't it have been cool to see the Red Sea part? Wouldn't it have been neat to be there? Of course, everybody's like, man, I would love to have seen that. But oh, oh, don't answer too quickly. How many of you would have been willing to stand still when the Egyptians were bearing down about to kill you and Moses says from God, don't move? Most of us today would have not seen the Red Sea part because we would not have stood still we were coming up with a different plan. It looks like it's not going to work. Maybe this isn't from God. Let's try something else, and we would have compromised. Wouldn't it have been cool to see the walls of Jericho fall? We'd all say, yeah, that had been amazing. Yeah, but would you have been willing to deal with the seven days of humiliation as you walked around the walls, not allowed to speak, as the people in the city mocked you? I even had, when I left the pastorate, going to this traveling ministry, which it just surprised Becky and I as we wrote our newsletter. It's been 12 years already. We're in our 13th year of, of ministry as just a preacher. It's been amazing to see what God's done. But when we stepped out, there were many who mocked us. You're being foolish. You're being stupid. You have a responsibility to take care of your family. You've got a wife and three young kids. Why are you doing this? And we miss out on seeing God do the amazing because we're not willing to put up with the humiliation when it comes to fully trusting in God. Folks, I'm going to say this to you again. If you believe in a God with whom nothing is impossible, you will see great things. Go to Luke chapter 1. It's Christmas time. Let me give you a great example. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 38. The angel says to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now let me ask you. Had Mary ever heard Bible stories about how a young girl who was a virgin became pregnant? This had never happened before, and I promise you, she still didn't fully understand it when the angel said, Spirit of God's going to come upon you, and you're going to have a baby inside of you, and it's going to be from God. But the angel said, just keep this in mind, nothing is impossible with God. You've probably said these words yourself, or if you've been in any kind of a church situation over the years, you've probably heard these words. That won't work. That's not possible. It just doesn't work that way. It's not in the budget. Have you heard those things? Of course we have. And we wonder why the church struggles and limps its way along when we're children of the king who has an unlimited budget. Yet we miss out on so much because we don't really believe nothing is impossible with God. 
Go to Romans chapter 4. I love how Romans describes Abraham's faith. Romans chapter 4, look at verses 13 through 25. Romans 4, starting in verse 13. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. That's Genesis chapter 17. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. How did God make the world? Out of what? Out of nothing. He just, out of nothing, he made everything we see. I love that. He's the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. By the way, that's a pretty good description of getting old, isn't it? As good as dead. I've got some older friends that I call them that, and I say, that's a Bible term. That's a Bible term. But you're... As good as dead. When he was 100, about 100 years old, or, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trans trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, let me remind you. This is the same Abram that God gave him Isaac. But years later, God told Abram to take Isaac and do what with him? To kill him. Sacrifice him on the mountain that he'll show him. The book of Hebrews tells us that Abram believed that God was going to bring him back from the dead because God had promised that through this child, he would make him a multitude of nations and make him a mighty nation and then also a multitude of nations. So he actually believed that even though God was wanting him to kill him, the scripture in Hebrews says that as he was going up that mountain, he just simply believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. Let me ask you, We've seen in the Bible stories of people being raised from the dead. Jairus' daughter, Lazarus. But were there any stories of people being raised from the dead prior to Genesis 22? No. He was believing that God would do something he had never seen before that was impossible in the eyes of man, but God made a promise and therefore God said it, and I'm going to hang on to what he said. And let me just tell you something, folks. If you will get to know the word and know the God of the word and know what he's promised and apply it to what your situation, if it applies to your situation, and know what he said to you, you will experience God doing great things that seemed impossible or foolish to those around you 
but we miss out on so much because we're too busy trying to make good decisions, be good stewards, make wise choices of our own, doing what we think we can do for God. And when we do what we can do for God, we never experience the impossible. And we miss out on so much. I just want to remind you, God asked this question to Ezekiel. Can these bones live? Our natural response would have been not at all. But Ezekiel said, I don't know, but you know. And then God tells him to start preaching to the bones. Now, as we look closely at what God does to these bones, we have to remember that these bones represent the whole house or the nation of Israel. Go back to chapter 37. Look at verses 11 through 14. Then God said to me, Ezekiel says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I'll put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now, this is not a prophecy about individual resurrection of Jewish people. I want to make sure this is clear, and I'm going to show you from Scripture why. This is a prophecy about the nation of Israel being resurrected in the last days, the nation of Israel becoming a nation again. This is not about individual Jewish people being resurrected in the last days. The scripture had been teaching that for a long time. Let me show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, look at verses 17 through 27. Lazarus has died. Jesus let him die. John chapter 11, verse 17. Now Jesus came, and he found the Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Do you see that? The Jews had been taught that there was a resurrection on the last day where Jews who were faithful and believing were going to be brought back to life. That had been taught in the Bible many, many times. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of of God who's coming into the world. So even Martha understood that the scripture taught that there was a resurrection for the individual Jew on the last day. Go back to Isaiah chapter 26. In Isaiah 26, verse 19, God prophesied through Isaiah many, many years before, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, you who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isn't it interesting, if you know anything about the New Testament wrestling between the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. As many a preacher has jokingly said, that's why they were sad, you see. 
But that's the thing. Helps you remember which was which. But the Pharisees believed that, the, that there was a resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. It can't be any more clear than this. But this isn't the only place. Go to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 and then verse 13. Daniel 12. He's given prophecy about the very last days for the nation of Israel at that time. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Jump down to verse 13. Daniel's told, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. So the Old Testament, I could show you more, but that hopefully gives you an idea. The Old Testament prophecies had told long before that Jews who were faithful and believing would be resurrected in the last day. They understood that. Martha understood that. But what Jesus is saying here is not about an individual resurrection, but these bones are who? The house or the nation of Israel. See, Israel had this point been exiled from their land. They had been taken into captivity piece by piece, but at this point... Jerusalem has been destroyed. There is no more nation of Israel. They're no longer in the land. And they were saying, what hope is there for us as a nation? And even though God's the one that brought the judgment, God's the one bringing the encouragement and saying, let me show you something. At the very end, your nation will come to life again. I don't know how many of you realize this, but what we saw in the nation of Israel just even becoming a nation in 1948 is a huge deal. If you do any study of history, no nation in the history of the world has ever been removed from their land for over 200 to 230 years and has ever come back and regained their nationhood again, ever. In the whole history of the world, if any nation was taken away longer than 200 and something years, they never made it back. They never existed again as a nation. But Israel was removed from the land for almost 2,000 years with all the nations trying to wipe them off the face of the earth, wherever they went. And then in a day, the miracle occurred. The nation of Israel became a nation. They declared themselves a nation within 10 minutes. Our president, thank God for a godly president at the time, our president acknowledged instantly within 10 minutes that they're a nation. I love the fact that while I was at the prophecy conference in Dallas last week, that President Trump said Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Let me just say something to you folks. The dead bones have come back to life. But something's missing from the prophecy. What's missing? The Spirit of God in them. You notice how he's told to prophesy and preach to the bones, and he does, and the bones start coming. That's where we got that song, by the way, the knee bones connected to the thigh bone or whatever. I, I, you know, I, I've forgotten all how it all ties together anymore, but then... But then on top of the bones, as they come back together, there's the sinew, and then the muscles, the flesh, and then on top of that, the skin. But it was obvious that even though they had come back seemingly to life, there was no breath in them. 
And God then tells him to prophesy a second time and preach to the breath. And God even says in the section that we read, then the last days he's going to bring them back into the land and he's going to then put a spirit within them. The nation of Israel is alive again, but they're not alive. They still don't have the spirit of God within them and that hasn't happened yet. But look closely at verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Don't miss that. Notice where the breath is supposed to come from. Where's the, four, where's the breath supposed to come from? The four winds. Now, most of us would read that quickly and say, oh, that just simply means the four corners. Mm-mm. There's more to that than this. Whenever you see words like this and phrases, you need to use other places in the Bible that it's used to help you understand what it means. I'm going to take you to two. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Look at verses 1 through 8. And then verses 19 through 28. Daniel 7, starting in verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. And as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth speaking great things. Jump down to verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saint, for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings." He shall speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, two and a half, three and a half years. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. 
And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given over to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So Daniel was given a vision of the very, very last days when he was given a vision of this fourth beast, which has not yet come upon the earth, but it's coming. It's going to be this one world power that the Antichrist is going to come out of. He's going to remove three of the ten kings, and he's going to actually exalt himself, and pretty much he's going to seek to be worshipped himself. We've studied that in our book, Study of Revelation. But how did this all get started, all these beasts that are coming to rule and reign over the globe and over Israel? The four winds from heaven. Oh, go to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, look at verses 1 through 4. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels, who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Here we see at this point, at the beginning of the tribulation period, these angels that are holding back the four winds are told, don't let the judgment come until the 144,000 Jewish witnesses are sealed and protected. Then you can let the harm come. When God tells Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath and say to the breath, come from the four winds. He's not just simply saying that it's going to be over the whole globe. He's also saying that it's going to be through judgment that they are purified through judgment that's coming on the whole globe, especially the nation of Israel during that time, that they come to faith. And let me tell you, isn't that how God typically has to bring all of us to a place of being reconciled to Him where we receive His Spirit? We only can be born again if we are repentant. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Without an understanding of our sin, without an understanding of our lostness, without a humbleness or being broken. Folks, all these people say, oh, I believed in the Lord my whole life. It's not what the Bible teaches then. The Bible doesn't teach that you've always been a Christian. The Bible teaches there has to be a point where you understood your lostness and then you came to faith. Folks, I want to just remind you that God has to use hardship to bring us to him where we're willing to receive his spirit. The nation of Israel is going to get his breath. The Spirit of God is going to come within them, but it's not going to be until after a long, hard period of time in which the whole world is judged and Israel will be put through a time of purification. Are they alive again? Not really. Yes, not really. But that's still going to happen. It's still going to happen. Like I told you before, the fact that the nation of Israel is in their land is awesome because they had to be in their land for them to be chased out of the land. They're back in the land, but they're about to go through a hard, hard time. I love the fact that our president has declared that Israel, sorry, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. I'm grateful for that. I'm glad that he's willing to say, I'm going to say the, un, the politically incorrect things. I can't promise you that the response of the world is going to be great to this. It already hasn't been. I can't tell you that everything's going to be hunky-dory now because he's made this statement. 
But that, that's okay. The Bible says things aren't going to be hunky-dory for a while. So, the nation of Israel is going to come back to life one day with God's Spirit within them. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, He's going to live and rule and reign from Jerusalem as well, and that day's coming. But it hasn't happened yet. Go back now to Ezekiel chapter 37, and let's look at the last half of this chapter. Ezekiel 37, verses 15 through 28. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him, and then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them to one another in one stick, and that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, Will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph, that's the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I'll join it with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall have, all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and all their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I'll set them in their land and multiply them. And I'll set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now Ezekiel's told to take two sticks, one representing the northern kingdom, Ephraim, and the other representing the southern kingdom, Judah. He's to put the two sticks together, making them into one stick, signifying that when God rebuilds them as a nation, there will be no longer a division in the nation of Israel. By the way, this division started around 931 B.C. at the time of the end of Solomon's reign. Go to 1 Kings chapter 11, because as I studied on this, I saw something that I had never really noticed before in, in my study about this topic. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 26 through 43, for years I just assumed that the dividing of the nation of Israel into two kingdoms was solely because of the, the disobedience of the people of Israel. But I want you to see as we read the scriptures, God was actually involved in the process. 1 Kings chapter 11, look at verses 26 and following. It says, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. This is King Solomon. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. 
And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me, and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I'll make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, to give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you and shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And you, you, if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David, my servant, did, I'll be with you and I will build you as a sure house I built as I built for David, and I'll give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem was over all Israel was forty years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. So here we see that prior to Solomon dying, God has the prophet Ahijah go to Jeroboam and say, I have chosen to give you ten tribes. You're going to rule over the ten tribes in the northern kingdom, and I'm going to give one tribe to Solomon, and it will carry on, carry on to his son, because for the David's sake, I'm always going to have a king from David's lineage ruling over Jerusalem. Now, it was because of their disobedience, it was because of their sin, but it was also because of Solomon's sin. The end of his life, as wise as he was, he had many wives and they led him astray and he worshiped the foreign gods and all this. Now, there's lots of reasons why God did this. If you remember early in our study, when we saw how God was talking to Judah, at this point, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken captive by the Assyrians and they were no longer. You remember how God said to them, I thought you would have paid attention to your older sister, sorry, your younger sister, and you would have learned from her mistakes, but you didn't. And actually, Judah, who knew better, actually sinned even greater than her sister did in the northern kingdom. God was using the northern kingdom to teach the southern kingdom. But God was the one who divided them. He was the one who set it apart. But now at this point, at the very end, there's not going to be two kingdoms anymore, but one. God's the one that divided them. He's the one that's going to bring them back together. Go to Jeremiah chapter 3. Look at verses 15 through 18. Again, talking about the millennial kingdom, I will give you, one, give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. 
and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I give your fathers for a heritage. Again, same prophecy now through Jeremiah, that in those days, during the millennial kingdom, the two kingdoms are going to come together. Go to Hosea. Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So now three times we've seen in the Old Testament prophecy that in the very last days during the Millennial Kingdom, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom are going to be united. Have you all heard people talking about the lost 12 tribes of Israel or the lost 10 tribes of Israel? And how, if you haven't, that's a very well-known term for people that study prophecy about how we don't know whatever happened to those lost tribes. Well, God does. Isn't it interesting nowadays you can send a little sample away and you can get your DNA back and you find out where you've come from. You find out your ancestry. By the way, don't you think God can do that? He knows where all the Israelites are. He's been keeping an eye on them. He's had a remnant every single generation, always set apart for whenever that day comes. And then when that day comes, Israel's going to be regathered. This prophecy about the dry bones is about the re re resurrection of the nation of Israel. What we've seen is partial fulfillment, but the breath's not in them yet. The time that we have left tonight, what I want to do is I want us to look closely at chapter 37, verse 37. Chapter 37, verse 27. 37, verse 27. It says, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Don't miss this. Listen to the wording. It's very important. My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. When is this prophecy talking about this is going to happen? When God's going to dwell among them, and they're going to be, He's going to be their God, and they're going to be His people. During the Millennial Kingdom. What I want to do is take you through a journey real quick from Genesis to Revelation. You say, Jim, don't you do that every night? Well, probably. But I want to show you how this has been God's heart all throughout the whole Scripture. That God's desire is to be with us. We've always heard people say, I can't wait to go be with God. You got it backwards. He's not up there waiting for you to come to him. God has always desired to be with us. Just think back to the garden real quick before we even go any further. Who even made the garden? Who even made man and woman and put them in the garden? God. So he could be with them. And he walked with them. He hung out with them. Go to Genesis chapter 17. You guys that were in men in motion this morning are going to get a recap. But some of you weren't paying attention then anyway, so. And I'm not naming names, Earl. <laughs> Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me 
and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. We saw that in Romans, didn't we? And kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Don't miss that. Remember back in Ezekiel 37, 27, my, I'm going to live amongst them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Folks, to say that God is your God doesn't mean what God's saying here. Because what God's saying when he says, I want to be their God and they'll be my people, he's saying, I want to be their everything. Not one of the things, oh, I also believe in God. Oh, what do you, who are you? Oh, I'm a pipe fitter, but I'm also a Christian. No, you got it wrong. Our walk with the Lord should be first and foremost. He wants to be everything. Not an addition or one of the many things in our lives. And when he says at this time, I want to be their God, their everything. Now go to Leviticus chapter 26. As we've been going through Ezekiel, we've many times come back to this chapter and there's a lot of nasty stuff in this chapter. As God says, if you don't listen and you don't obey, here's the things I'm going to do. But prior to that, in chapter 26, verses 1 through uh, 13, listen to what God says. He says to the nation of Israel, you shall, not, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord, your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. The threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove the harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. And you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I'll turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves as I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk direct. You see again when he says I want to be your God and you be my people, he adds something to it. I'm going to not just make my dwelling among you. I want to walk among you. I want to be with you. Have you ever really considered that instead of getting up in the morning and thinking, oh, I got to read my Bible or oh, I got to have my quiet time and you feel guilty about the fact I got to spend time with God. Have you ever thought about the fact that he's there waiting to spend time with you? It's the other way around. It's not that, oh, I have to spend time with God. It's he wants to spend time with you. Remember the old Larnell Harris song, I miss my time with you, as if God were singing to us. Go to Revelation 21. At the end of the millennial kingdom, 
after the time when Jesus is reigning and ruling from Jerusalem. All the nations are going to go up and worship him there. In Revelation 21, look at verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city new and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. By the way, where is this voice coming from? Who's shouting from the throne? God. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God, at that point, will shout, I get to be with them now, forever and ever and ever. There's no more of this other stuff. No more sin, no more separation, no more crying, no more pain, no more of the stuff that makes them miss out on what I've been wanting to give them for so long. It is now a time when I get to be with them. God is celebrating that fact. That's, that's just, don't miss that all through the scriptures, God's been saying, I want to be your God. I want to be with you. In John chapter 17, Jesus, before he went to the cross, prayed, verses 24 and following, there in the garden, he said, Father, I want those that you've given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory and to experience the love that you have for me. I want it to be given to them. God's desire is, folks, don't miss this. He pursues, he pursues, he pursues Folks, if anybody goes to hell, and unfortunately many, many go there, God didn't send them to hell. They chose to go to hell. He's been pursuing them all along, as you shared, Bill, through creation, through His Spirit, using some of us as His witnesses. He's been pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. And if they pretty much say, talk to the hand, and they end up in hell, it's not because God sent them, but they chose to go against everything he did. That's why the book of Hebrews says they have trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant which sanctifies them. They had a chance. They rejected it. God's desire is to be with us. For God so, what? Loved the world that he sent his only son. But I want to talk to you real quick about something that unfortunately is missed by many Christians today. See, we've talked about how this has been God's desire to be with us all along. We talked about how in the eternal state, God shouts and says, now the dwelling of God is with man. And we say, isn't that going to be an awesome day? That's just going to be an amazing day. But go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. A lot of Christ Christians have missed something. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We talk about the day in which we get to be with God, and God gets to be with us. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says to the church, those of us in the church age, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Go to chapter 6, look at verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you're not your own, for you're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Folks, it's easy to sit and say, one day we're going to be with God, and He gets to be with us, and that's going to be so amazing. You got that now. 
Didn't we, haven't we been studying that the nation of Israel, he's going to erase their sin. He's going to put his spirit within them and move them to follow his decrees. God's been promising that in the very end, all Israel that survives the tribulation, those that make it to the end will be saved. And he's going to put his spirit with them and he's, within them and he's going to move them to follow his decrees. But we in the church have been given that now to make Israel jealous. But most Christians today do not experience the indwelling spirit, do not understand the reality of walking in the spirit, being led of the spirit, listening to the Lord, obeying what he leads us to do according to his word and through his spirit and seeing him do these amazing things. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 14 and following said, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, here's my prayer for you, that you would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Do you understand the hope to which he's called you? The glorious inheritance that we have in the saints and his mighty power for us who believe. In other words, Paul says, I've heard about your faith and I've heard that it's been proved as real because how you love each other. Here's my prayer for you now, that you would understand the third part of the promise. That God lives within you and you'll know him better and you'll know how much he loves you. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, chapter three of Ephesians, he goes even further. In verses 14 and following, he says, my prayer is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. By the way, is Jesus ever going to leave you? Is the Holy Spirit ever going to leave you? No, the Bible is very clear that if you've received his spirit, you're sealed for the day of redemption. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. John chapter 6, Jesus said, everyone that the Father gives me, I will lose none that the Father has given me. I dealt with recently people coming up and saying, well, what about these people that think you can lose your salvation? I could show you hundreds of scriptures that show that that's not the case. But actually, the simplest, easiest one is to take you to John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I will lose none that the Father has given me. I think that kind of settles it, doesn't it, folks? All right, so if the Bible says that we can't lose our salvation if we've received his spirit, that's the real issue. Not whether you pray to prayer, but have you received his spirit? Why does Paul say, I will now pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? You see, a lot of Christians today have Christ within them, but he's not allowed to take up residence, if you will, in the sense of being the ruler and the reigner in our hearts and in our lives. And then Paul goes on in that passage and he says, I pray that he will dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the insight with all the other saints to know the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God. I shared with the guys today at Men in Motion that I've always wanted to, whenever I've jumped into deep water, see how far I can go down and try to touch the bottom. There's a place that and my daughter Nicole here tonight will tell you, we go to Alton Bay and we love to swim in Lake Winnipesaukee. And there's even, it's such a deep, deep lake that right there, at the edge of the lake, there's a little dock right there. And we'll jump off the dock and try to touch the bottom. And you can't even touch the bottom if you just go out 10 feet from the dock. It just drops off. But I'm always one of these ones that's adventurous, and I want to see if I can do it. And so I'll take a deep breath. And there comes a point where you have to decide, am I going to try to go any deeper? Am I going to have enough breath to get back to the top? And I never get to touch the bottom. I did the same thing when I was pastor in Chicago and a family in the church had a yacht and took us out on Lake Michigan. Becky, you'll remember, it was a beautiful day and we were just anchored off the shore, off Navy Pier, just out there in Lake Michigan. Beautiful, beautiful day. And we were jumping off the boat and swimming in that beautiful water. And again, I can touch the bottom. I about died. And I never touched the bottom. 
And Paul says, I hope you will try to touch the walls, if you will, of the love of God. Try to touch the bottom. That you don't understand the height, the width, the depth, and the breadth of the love of God. Let me just ask you, folks, if you really spend your time wanting to know how much God loves you, will you ever get to the point where you realize it all? But most of us don't even take the time. Most of us don't even take the time. Oh, I could try to preach it to you tonight. But God showed me something while I was preaching this morning and trying to convince these guys that, I, that they're missing out on so much because they don't understand what it means to walk in the Spirit and to experience this living God within us now. And then it hit me while I was trying to preach them to understand it that God showed in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, Paul said this, this is my prayer for you. Folks, I can't get you there. I can't make you hungry. I can try to feed you, but if you're not hungry, you won't eat. Do you know what my prayer is for you? That you'll get hungry. I thank God for your faith. I thank God for the fact that it's been manifested in your love for each other. I love all y'all. I can't wait to get here on Tuesday nights. My wife will tell you, Tuesday nights, I'm always saying, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. In other words, I just said, if we're late, it's not my fault. But what I'm saying, though, is this. I love the fact that you love the Lord Jesus. And you love each other. My prayer now is that you won't wait and get till you get to heaven to be with God and have him be with you. That you're getting up in the morning and spending time with him won't be I've got to. But it'll turn into I get to. Oh, how do we get there? How do we get there? 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul says, May the Lord God direct your hearts to the love of God. Did you hear that? May the Lord God direct your hearts to the love of God. Ask him. Say, Lord, you've given me something as a child of God, as a church aid believer, that the Jews are going to have one day and we're all going to experience forever in the eternal state. You're in dwelling presence now. Give me a hunger for you. Give me a hunger for you. And watch what God does. You might even start to believe that nothing is impossible. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.